Hello, and welcome back to the KI Prime podcast with me, Alina Jenkins. In this episode, my conversation is with the 2008 prize winner, Dr. Jeff Norman. Dr. Norman is a highly original and innovative researcher in the field of medical education. His research has had a significant impact on our understanding of the development of expertise in clinical medicine and has contributed to our knowledge of the complexity of pattern recognition, clinical reasoning and problem solving. Dr. Norman's studies have also provided a deep insight into research-based reforms in medical curricula worldwide. He is Professor of Clinical Epidemiology and Biostatistics at McMaster University, but started his career with a PhD in nuclear physics. When we spoke in the autumn of 2020, he told me why he made this big change of direction. Pure happenstance. I was doing a PhD at McMaster at the time. It was the best place in Canada and uh, finished it off. It was a, frankly, a lackluster PhD. It really wasn't very, very good. But however, I kept applying for jobs here, there, and everywhere. I got my usual two inches worth of rejections. But in those days, computers were physicists' playthings. And so it turned out that the head of the computer center was also on my key PhD committee. I was casting around for jobs. I couldn't get anywhere. Then one day he said, well, there's this job in family medicine running a computerized medical record system. Oh, okay. So I talked to the guy. We got along very well. I got that job. But then within six months, he decided to do a residency in psychiatry. And that job ended. And there was an internist visiting the clinic. And it turned out he was the head of medical education. And so that night I became a medical educator. I knew nothing. I knew diddly squat. You know, all my knowledge of quantum mechanics didn't serve me while it came to problem solving. But I pulled the wool over their eyes, I guess, and I got this job. And honestly, statistics, I'd never taken a stats course, psychology, never taken a psychology course. And I was purely winging it. And they decided that, as near as I can tell, in hindsight, they decided that they wanted to investigate clinical problem-solving skills. And they thought, well, physicists are good problem solvers. They should have good insights. I didn't know anything about methods. I'd never heard of a control group even. And for six or seven years, I muddled along as a research assistant, gradually picking up some stats on the side. And then I cut a deal with my, with my boss. I kept saying, so when am I going to go on faculty? Because I was writing papers and putting their names on them. And, and finally, he said one day, well, why don't you go off to Michigan State and get yourself a master's degree in education and then come back and we'll get you on faculty? And that's how it happened, basically. I've written a couple of papers about the first generation of medical education types, and we were all odd bods who couldn't get a real job anywhere. There was a theology major, there was an economics major, there was an English major, there was me. And at the other end of my career now, I reflect back, and even as recently as the last couple of weeks, I realized that although there was nothing directly applicable from physics, quantum mechanics really doesn't help you in education. Still. This is a kind of a state of mind that helps you. How did I go into physics? Because I wanted to know why, how things worked. I always wanted to take the back off the alarm clock. And to this day, the thing that I think distinguishes my research career from others is essentially that I'm not interested in making the world a better place, frankly. I really don't care. I am interested in trying to figure out how things work. And fortunately for me, psychology is a lot easier to pick up on the side than physics. And so I'm now a credible psychologist. I've published in psych journals. I've graduated a number of PhDs, all learning it on the side. 
and all of it driven with the idea of saying, so how does the mind work? I mean, that sounds pompous, but how do doctors get to a diagnosis? That's the central theme. People sometimes stay with something because they love it or it fascinates them or they feel there are opportunities. So what was it that made you think, do you know what, I'll keep doing this? Well, the mortgage helped. I had to pay a mortgage. First seven years, I really wondered what the hell I was doing here. It, it felt like market research. It felt like I was working for Coca-Cola or something, trying to show that this thing is better than that thing. But the, the year at Michigan State really was a turning point because I had the good fortune of studying with a guy named Lee Shulman, who was one of the absolute superstars. And he taught me to love education research. And that really turned my mind around. I also took a stats course from a guy at Michigan State who was a wonderful stats prof. And that spun off into, I think I've written three or four stats books. Embarrassingly, when you look at my, my citation count and so on, the three stats books are in the top 10. One book published by Oxford actually has 16,000 citations, which is quite mind-blowing. So that, that served me in good stead in terms of the analytical tools. But I turned the corner first when I was at Michigan State and, and got to love education. And then when I came back to McMaster, I had the good fortune of plugging in with some of the cognitive psychologists at McMaster. And that's where I really learned, learned the trade. And cognitive psychology really is a lot more like science than most of education. So I, I've mutated into being a credible cognitive psychologist. My litmus test actually was, I say to myself, could you pass a first year psych exam? And it's only about 10 years ago I decided that I could probably pass a first-year psych exam. In the meantime, I've cranked out half a dozen PhDs in psychology, but they know more about it than I do, really. But anyway, there you go. Yes, I grew to love it, and I grew to love the, the science of it, but it became a long time. Jeff, I think your story is inspiring because there may be quite a few people early in their career who think they have to plan and make goals. But you've done very well by adopting the attitude of, well, let's just see how this goes. I lay in bed last night and said, so how can I encapsulate my success? And God knows it has been a success. You know, no, nobody's more surprised than the person's wife. I owe my success to three things. And of course, I'm caricaturing. And it's, it's alliteration at its best. I'm smart. Yeah, I, I really am pretty smart, although I'm, I could never have made it in physics. I really couldn't. I was just blown away. I was in the top of the bottom. I was about halfway down. There were a lot smarter people, but you have to be achingly smart to do it in physics. But I'm smart, yeah. The other two things that really, really mattered is sociability. I've always, as you've already, I'm sure, detected, I can be funny. I can keep be amusing. I can do good talks. And, and I can be depended on. And I know how to play meetings well. I know all the social games. I'm actually an introvert. I really don't like crowds and I don't like strangers, but I have the clues to do that. The most important course I took in university was the college fraternity, frankly, because that taught me to be sociable. And the final thing is serendipity. Being at McMaster in 1970, inventing problem-based learning, that was a very good place to be to get ahead in this field. And I have no question at all that a lot of it was serendipity. Having a guy on my committee as the head of the computer center, all of those things that just fell into place for me. And I was very, very fortunate. 
It's interesting to hear you talk about communication. It's something which we've discussed a lot in this podcast. Do you think that communication skills should be up there with, say, technical and diagnostic skills? People have to like you and they have to be able to depend on you. And so the, the caricature of the, the wizened up little physicist, you know, with the steel room spectacles and the, the lab coat with burn holes in it. First of all, those people, if they did exist, were lousy physicists. The good ones, like the good ones in any field, and I've, I've had the privilege of meeting half a dozen Nobel Prize winners. The one common characteristic is that in their field, it's Uncle Albert telling you a story. They can weave the most incredible stories. They can communicate about what they're doing in such a way that they can do a podcast that anybody would be attracted to. And so I've honed my communication skills. I, as you can imagine, I've given a bazillion talks all around the world. I've, I've seen the world on the back of medical education. And yes, I brought my wife along with me. One of the, one of the reasons is because people know when I do a talk, they will be entertained. And it got to the point where maybe starting 10 years ago, as soon as I'd walk into the room, you'd hear a sort of a rumble of chuckles. Jeff is here. We're going to have a good time. And that's terribly important. That, you know, there's nothing more agonizing than listen to somebody read a talk. I can do spontaneous humor. And people, people get confused humor with joke telling. They're not the same at all. Humor has to be spontaneous, or at least it has to appear spontaneous. And I'm good at that. I taught myself how to do that. And, and it really matters. As I understand, your early research, when you were still trying to find your way, had a major impact on medical assessment. Can you tell our listeners more about those early days and the impacts of the research? Sure. I was hired to do the stuff on medical problem solving, and that's okay. That was fine. And in fact, that became the the center point of my career because a number of years later, it turned out that that was a great arena for doing applied cognitive psychology. Many of the issues in cognitive psychology could be played out in a natural domain called medicine. And the psychologists loved it because you couldn't go ahead and develop materials to prove your particular point. You had to use cardiograms or x-rays or whatever it may be. And so it had a, an error of validity about it. But I didn't really start capitalizing on that till quite late in my career, about, say, 1990, 1995, something like that. What happened early on was we did these studies. and. We did a few right things, but they were clunky. They were time-consuming. They went on for years and years. In fact, I started writing the grants for those studies in 71. The first paper was published in 81. So it was a 10-year haul. I had to do something to keep myself amused in the meantime. And furthermore, I was a research assistant, and I had to figure out some way to get on faculty. And so the only way to do that was to continue to write the grants and do the research around clinical reasoning and put the other guy's names on the papers, but spin off my own research career that I could put my name on. And that became evident that that was the way I was going to make it. Well, where else could you look? First of all, assessment has always been big in medical education. And it was even bigger back then because much of the resources were being furnished by the national licensing bodies, Medical Council of Canada, uh, National Board of Medical Examiners. And Assessment had always figured loom large in in the panoply of medical education. And the angle I had was against the mathematical background, that I didn't know anything very much directly about assessment, but I could pick it up easily. And so I have become, you know, an acknowledged assessment person. Uh, So, you know, my, my most cited book is Health Measurement Scales, which is Applied Psychometrics. 
That's the Oxford book, 16,000 citations. I could do that because I could understand mathematics at a deep level that most people can't. And me and, and my other, my colleague, we, the book is full of really understandable, comprehensible explanations. Anyway, that background enabled me to le leverage my way into assessment issues. And so I got doing a lot of studies of assessment that turned out to be, uh, don't call it earth shattering, Jeff, that's giving it too much credit, but changed a little bit of the world. <laughs> so one of the mainstays of, of, of the licensing bodies back in those days was something called a patient management problem, which was a written problem that you worked your way through. And I did a, one of the studies where I compared how people did on that with how they did with exactly the same case portrayed by a standardized patient and showed gross differences between the two. In other words, the PMP could not be used as a surrogate for the real encounter. And within a few years, it had disappeared from all the licensing exams and replaced by things like Ron Hardin's Zosky. So the assessment thing came easy to me, and I, I cashiered it very well. However, at the end of the day, it got boring as hell. I remember lying, lying in bed one night saying, so I've got to do another assessment study, so it'll involve reliability and validity. Now, the reliability coefficients, the design will be the same as all the other designs. I'll do a bunch of repeated measures on a bunch of people. The reliability would come out to between 0.7 and 0.8, because it always does. The validity coefficients will correlate with other things about 0.2 to 0.3, because they always do. Given that they always do this, why the hell am I doing the study? And there was no creativity involved in putting these studies together. The designs always looked the same. The numbers always came out the same. The analyses were the same. I was bored out of my gourd. And so at some point, and I don't remember exactly when, at some point I had to sit, sit to myself, got to get out of this rut. It's, it's killing you. And so I made a conscious decision that I didn't tell anybody about to get back into learning, problem solving, thinking, that stuff where there was much more breadth of possibilities around how you design studies, the kind of questions you ask, the kind of analyses you do. And that's where I got to. And so there was, if, I guess, I think if you looked at my CV, you could, you could plot a transition that occurred over a two or three year period where I, I still do a little bit of assessment because it pays the bills. But where I made a conscious transition back to where I started, which was around issues around thinking. And that's the, the, the fire that always burns. That's the thing that's kept me really alive and, and continues to keep me alive. I think, I think I'm publishing about six papers this year, but I'm retired, and I've been retired for five years, and I'm old, except in my mind, because this stuff keeps me alive. Do you know, I wonder if you hadn't made that conscious decision to do the things which bring you joy. I wonder if we'd be talking now. But I want to move on to the research which led you to winning the Karolinska Prize. Can you tell me more about that? I have to say, I'm, I'm 75. I'm looking backwards rather than forwards. And I'm saying, so Jeff, what are they going to put on your gravestone? And when I thought it's embarrassingly hard for me to say, so how have you changed the world? Because I'm not sure I can come up with any really neat packages on that one. And when I do, I have to admit that I perhaps have had more influence on the world through my, my textbooks, uh, through the assessment stuff, through some review articles I wrote, God, 30 years ago that are still being cited around, around problem solving, around problem-based learning. 
and also also strangely through i took a i took a brief departure into a whole issue called quality of life measurement and they were doing the psychometrics so poorly that i saw an opportunity and i wrote three quite fundamental papers there if you look at the top 10 on the hit parade on my hit parade of citations there's three books and there's three papers in quality of life measurement and there's four papers on education so those arguably have had more impact than the education stuff and i told you at the beginning i do this stuff because i enjoy it not because i'm going to change the world so the research on clinical reasoning yes it's been a long haul where i think how i've changed the world is the prevalent view when i started and that unfortunately what is still somewhat the prevalent view is that it's all about learning general problem solving skills all about learning how to think better but the psychology let's go psychologists knew by 1990 or so that problem solving occurs within a knowledge domain and it's all about knowledge even creativity which we tend to think of as how many uses for a brick all of that relates to how much you know about that domain and so yes i managed to shift the world in terms of thinking that particular way about it because it trying to uh, separate problem solving skills as a separate entity to be taught and learned is a dead end street it doesn't work and yet a lot of people it's so intuitively attractive it's so so much in the lexicon of the way we think about things you know how many times have you heard we don't want to just shove knowledge down students throats we want to teach them to think and so what emerged as a mission being driven by the evidence and the science of it was no 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 what you really have to do is focus on how people learn the knowledge in such a way that they can access it as a quick sidebar teachers presume that once they've taught something students have it they know it they can reproduce it on exams and they can use it to solve problems i teach you how to take the square root of a number with some kind of algorithm now you can take the square root of numbers the fact of the matter is that we can show again and again and again that you teach a student a concept and half an hour later you give them another problem like the one they learned from but that looks different but involves the same concept and their chances of recognizing that the same problem that the same problem has arisen twice is about point about 30% between 10 and 30%. In other words transferring and that's the term for it transfer transferring from one domain one context to another is notoriously difficult because if you want to make an evolutionary argument because we've learned to process surface details the cavemen didn't worry about whether saber-toothed tigers had livers and kidneys they worried about this thing attacking them and said oh shit that's not an antelope that's a saber-toothed tiger i better run so the fundamental issue around problem solving is not general skills it's your ability to access relevant knowledge and apply it to the new problem and that's kind of an overriding theme for me other people will have to tell you whether i've won or lost on this one but i continue to harp harp away on it and it's been very very fruitful in terms of cranking out good research and enjoying the process of cranking out good research jeff it's been a real pleasure to chat with you and my final question is where do you think the field of medical education is going Uh I've been the editor of a journal called Advances in Health Sciences Education for 25 years. I passed the torch this year, thank goodness. Happy to see it go. I was running out of things to say. But they asked me to do a sort of a look well the article's called Looking Back, Looking Forward. And 
it's about the toughest article I've ever written. It took me a year to write it. Many, many, many drafts. In part because I'm just very uncomfortable with trying to predict the future. But it suddenly dawned on me that this article being written in 2020 casts a totally different specter on it than if it was written a year ago. And the specter is called COVID. And suddenly education, arguably education is at higher risk than anything else except restaurants and movie houses. Because we've now decided that kids can't go to school and that's the right decision. But we've decided that they will be virtual, will do virtual learning. But we are assuming that although it may not be equivalent, it's going to be a very good surrogate for it. And the trouble is that because of the pressure of time, virtually every teacher on the planet is now engaged in that exercise. What do run-of-the-mill teachers know about what is effective or not effective in terms of how people learn? I mean, the, the thing I just told you about transfer, I challenge you to ask any hundred teachers to define transfer, and maybe five of them will know what it is. It's that bad. And in fact, my, my master's degree is in educational psychology, but my work is in cognitive psychology, and they're hugely different. Educational psychology is what the teacher does, and cognitive is what, how people learn. And so I basically put in the plea, though, that if we have an opportunity here, not just something we should despair about, we have an opportunity to do digital learning right. It's not going to go away because now that we've discovered that we've put all the resources into making these modules, we're not going to then have teachers going back in the classroom full time like they did last year. So we have an opportunity to make sure we do it right. And, and in medical education, we're a small enough community that we should be nimble and be able to do it quickly and really examine more carefully how students learn and examine how effective teachers teach. We know very, very little about teaching. One thing we do know is that the quality of the teacher accounts for about three times as much of the variance in student performance as the quality of the curriculum. And yet we education types have been fooling around with the curriculum for 50 years and really showing very little effect for it. So my pitch, which probably will never come to pass, is let's, let's refocus on saying, how do people learn and how can we marshal teaching to do that? And how do we study and how do we find what effective teachers are doing? Because we don't know. So in terms of looking down the road, I would say that I think that's where the action should be. Whether it will be remains to be seen. Dr. Jeff Norman. That's it for this episode. Next time we'll be hearing from Dr. Richard Resnick, who has recently been appointed as President of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada and was the winner of the prize in 2010 for his work in surgical education. Until then, goodbye.